And as you're turning, remember this. In this world, as bad as it sometimes seems, not all is darkness and despair and vanity and emptiness and hevel. Everything matters here, the Bible teaches. It's not all emptiness. It's not all hevel. It's not that nothing matters. Actually, everything matters because in this world, salvation is available. This world need not end for you in darkness and despair and death. This world can end in salvation and life. And as we pursue life in this world, we need to be doing so at a deeper level than news, weather, and sports, in our thoughts, and in our conversation. Don't get distracted by the apathy that surrounds you in the culture. Don't get distracted by the entertainment that wants you thinking about something other than, what is life for? Why am I here? And what happens when I die? Those are questions that actually matter. And they're the ones we need to be asking and answering because this world need not end in darkness, death, and despair. It can end in salvation and life, but there's only one way that it does. I want to read together the end of our sermon text from last time in Jonah, because it actually answers the question, what happens after death? Who does salvation belong to, and how do I know? We're going to start in the middle of Jonah chapter 2, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in this text, and we're going to read the end of Jonah's prayer. We're going to start in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's death. But you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The word of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, ask us to hear and help us to hear and heed your word today. We know there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we also know the answer to the questions that Romans 10 asks. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Use this text to send us to the nations that they might hear and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We called this last time, this book of Jonah, we called it the gospel according to Jonah. Our text last week, we just read the end of it, it was his poetic prayer as he slips down beneath the waves. He's going down to the grave. He has traded his life to save some pagan sailors from the great storm of chapter 1. And as he dies, he prays this carefully crafted poem. It quotes the book of Psalms on every line, if you remember that. Every single line, every clause, every phrase, every word of his prayer is from the book of Psalms. Nothing but Psalms on his lips as he's praying. And it's in the shape of an X, which means the poem points to the middle of the poem. as saying, this is the main point of the poem. 
And because it's a poem in the middle of a story, the story is saying this poem and its main point is the point of the story. So if you get the middle of the poem of chapter 2, you get the whole point of the book of Jonah. Here's what Jonah's about. What is it a story about? Do you remember from last time it's a story about? Oh, come on. The church I preached at last week did much better with this. The, so it's a challenge, right? Are you competitive? The book of Jonah is about resurrection. Let's try it again. The book of Jonah is about resurrection. Thank you. Well done. Good job for participating in the pastor's little Southern Baptist moment. The book, the book of Jonah is about resurrection because death is not the end of the story for people who belong to God. Death is not the end of the story in Jonah. Resurrection is. Even a person who's as big of a screw-up as Jonah, and he is a, a screw-up. He's the only prophet in the whole Bible who does exactly the opposite of what he's told to do. No one else disobeys him like Jonah. He's the most reluctant evangelist in the Bible. He is deeply rebellious. He is wickedly sinful. Even Jonah gets a second chance because God's not going to let death be the end of him. His end is resurrection. It's resurrection. That's the resounding theme of the book of Jonah. And though Jonah is a complete story in and of itself, four scenes, four chapters, one story, it's not a standalone story, is it? Jonah comes in the middle of a book we learned in the introduction. It comes in the middle of the book of the Twelve. We call them the Minor Prophets. I like Book of the Twelve. And the whole book of the Twelve, all twelve are meant to be read together as one story. And they tell a story of redeeming love. Remember this from Hosea 1 through 3? It uses the metaphor of marriage to explain the story of redeeming love that all twelve minor prophets tell together. As though God is a faithful husband. And we play the role of the adulterous wife. We've abandoned our God. We're having an affair or a whole series of them. We're sleeping around looking for security and significance and satisfaction and salvation from someone, anyone other than the Lord God of Israel. And God could justly divorce us. We have no standing. We have no rights. But instead of divorcing us, God comes and redeems us and buys us back and renews his love for us and our love for him so that at the end of the day, he's saying, you're my people, you're mine. And we're responding by saying, you're my God, you're mine. That's the story of the Twelve, of redeeming love. Jonah sits right in the middle of that story and helps tell part of it because salvation belongs to the Lord. So now we've studied the first half of Jonah, right? And now we're finding out that it's a complex story, I think, because Jonah is actually doing a bunch of different things at once. The book of Jonah is pointing us to the gospel, I think. But the, the person of Jonah, the character of Jonah in the story, the prophet, he's actually figuring that's a literary way of saying pointing to, right? Reminding us of. Jonah's actually figuring two things in the story, not just one. That makes it a little complex. One thing Jonah figures in the story is he dies for his own sin, justly so, and goes down to his death. He's standing for us. He's standing for God's people and their rebellion against God and his mission for them. Go tell the nations. And Jonah says, absolutely not, death first. And so he gets that. And Jonah dies for his own sin, standing for us. He's the adulterous wife. He needs to be redeemed and bought back. So he figures us, God's people, but he also figures God's redeemer. He figures two things. He figures in this story, 
the one whom God sends to do the redeeming. He takes a three-day journey, just like Jesus takes a three-day journey. And Jonah takes God's wrath upon himself, saving the sailors, going down to the grave, and then coming back up in resurrection, just like Christ does on our behalf. Right, the analogy isn't perfect, because Jesus is perfect. Jesus has no sin. He doesn't die for his sin, just for ours. Jonah's not perfect, but yet Jonah figures Christ and points us forward to the cross of Jesus. He's taking a three-day journey, too. So Jonah figures two things. That's kind of what's going on in the first half of the book that we covered. Now we're at what every IT guy loves, right? This is the solution. I've been in IT a good chunk of my life and career. I still do a little consulting every now and then just because I like making other people's lives miserable, right? It's kind of fun because that's what IT people do. Here's the solution, right? What's the solution whenever you call the IT department? Oh, my computer's not working. I should just reboot it. Right? It's everybody's favorite solution. And then don't call me again. So we're now at the IT person's favorite part of Jonah. It's the reboot. Now we're going to start over. Didn't go so well the first time, right? Because we're using Windows and who likes Windows? So you have to go down. You have to control, delete, and quit all the processes. And now we're starting over. So this is going to be in four parts in our reboot. We're going to follow the sermon outline follows the text's outline and the text has four parts to it the first one you can see it in your bulletin here's the reboot part god says get up and go we're going to try this again see if it goes differently this time now that jonah's gone to death and come back in resurrection life and then there's a three-day city and a five-word message and then there's the heart of the chapter where the emperor gets new clothes we're calling it and then the end of the chapter ends actually the same way that chapter two ends so we're going to just dive into this and plow forward get up and go part two chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to read the whole chapter as we go through it together in the sermon. So, this is the word of the Lord as well. Then the Lord of, word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, it's second chance time. Jonah is resurrected. He has come back in newness of life. His last words we just, that we just heard in chapter 2 were, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we get to see if he actually believes that or not. And we expect that his death and resurrection in the first two chapters have changed him on the inside, that his repentance is accomplished with what is needed, and this time when he hears, go to Nineveh, he's not going to try to take a boat to Tarshish, but he's going to get his Greyhound bus ticket, and he's going to go to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And if you remember from the first time, sending a Jew, this is from a commentator, sending a Jew to preach to the Assyrians who hate the Israelites and whom the Israelites hate, right? This is, a, this is the Ukrainians and the Russians right now. So sending a Jew to the capital of the Assyrian Empire is no different than sending a Jew to Berlin in the 1930s. Right? What do you think is going to happen to him? That's what God's asked him to do. Go tell them my word, and they will inevitably kill you. But there's one detail in the text that's a little different than last time. There's one Hebrew word that changes. Otherwise, it's almost word for word with chapter 1. You can't see it in ESV. They translate it the same way, and that's fine. But in NIV and NAS, they do translate it differently, and you can see that the word has changed. In chapter 1, Jonah was told, go call out against Nineveh. And that word against has clear connotations of judgment is coming. Here, that word changes. The preposition's not the same. He's told to go call out to Nineveh. 
to Nineveh. Now, that's a more neutral word. That could still mean judgment, but it could mean something else. And we're no longer entirely sure what the content of his message is. Right? It's a subtle change, but it might be important. So we note the subtle change in the preposition, and we keep reading. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, it's okay to cheer and just apply, just a little good job. Well done, you're actually obeying this time. Good work, Jonah. The disobedient prodigal prophet is now on the road, and he's living up to God's mission to go. He's being sent. He has beautiful feet now. He's going to go bring some news of the word of the Lord to the city of Nineveh, even if they kill him. So now I am a Hebrew. Remember that from chapter 1? Now it actually means something. He's doing what I am a Hebrew means. He's doing what I am a Christian means. He's going to make disciples. Just like we do when we are sent. Keep reading in verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. I think that's an exceptionally interesting sentence. And it's very hard to understand. Because it's not going with the flow of the story. This is what I call a Folgers coffee moment. So you know those old Folgers coffee commercials where they have the microphone and the narrator? We've secretly replaced Bob's coffee with new Folgers crystals. Let's see if he can tell the difference. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's this mic over? So you need, you need to hear the mic over to understand why Bob is just about to go <laughs> and throw his cup against the wall, right? Otherwise, it will make no sense. It's because he's not drinking coffee. It's because he's drinking Folgers. That's why. I hope you noticed I put those in two different categories. This is a Folgers coffee moment in Scripture. This happens in stories where the narrator of the story will stop the plot, grab the microphone, and tell you, you really need to know this for what about this, what, what's about to happen. So this is one of those. And it's a little strange. It's hard to understand. Why do we need to know this? Every English Bible wrestles with this, and most of them end up doing what ESV does, which is something along the lines of three days' journey in breadth. So they're interpreting this as it must mean something like the city is so big it takes three days to walk across it. Like if you started in Lakeville and went all the way to Anoka, it would probably take about that long. That's a big city. Or it's so, such a, an important city because it's the capital. The customs process of checking your paper and your passports, you know, that takes three days to get all of the paperwork done and bribe all of the right officials so that you can get to the gate. It takes three days to get in. It takes three days. We're not quite sure what it means. So they, they add to it some other phrase at the end, like in breadth is what ESV has added to try to help us interpret it. I would like to give you another possible interpretation of this sentence that... I think it's only possible, and their interpretation is, is credible, and there's nothing wrong with it. I just read it a little bit differently, and so mine is also possible. This is my preferred interpretation. Nineveh was a great city to God, a three-day journey. That's all it says in Hebrew, and that's apposition, right? So the English majors just understood me, and I'm going to explain what that means to everybody else. This is apposition, which means it's saying the same thing two different ways. So, for instance, Grace Covenant, comma, a PCA church in Bloomington, comma, meets to worship at 9.30 on Sundays. How many churches are in that sentence? Oh, just one? So, Grace Covenant and a PCA church in Bloomington are actually talking about exactly the same thing, right? There's just one church, two different ways. That's apposition. This is apposition. 
It's saying the same thing two different ways. Nineveh was a great city to God. That's thing one, or item one. Three-day journey. That's item two. That's saying the same thing two different ways. And so now we need to ask the question, how do those two things go together? How is Nineveh being great to God a three-day journey? Do you remember how we remember our first three rules of interpretation of text? Context, and then the second one goes with it, which is context, and then the third one rounds it out, which is context. Good job, you remember them. Our first three rules of interpretation. We want to apply those here, and we want to say, okay, three-day journey, I need to understand that. Is there any other three-day journey anywhere in this neighborhood that's happened that would help me understand what a three-day journey is? And say, oh, I just, I haven't, I can't think of one. Has there been a three-day, oh, wait a minute, Jonah just went on a three-day journey where he died, went to, went to the pit, and came back in resurrection life. That's a three-day journey. So I would propose that perhaps what the text is saying that Nineveh is so important to God, it is worth his prophet, his son, going on a three-day journey of dying and coming back to life so he can get to Nineveh. That's how important Nineveh is. Nineveh is a very important city to God. It's worth a three-day journey of his son, death to life, to get to them. Now I say, now that's interesting that we need to know that Folgers coffee moment before we read what comes next. Nineveh is his enemies, people who hate him, people who have no right to stand before him, have no right to be part of his people, should never be included or engrafted or have nothing because all they do is hate and kill. Those people, they're worth a three-day journey of his son, death to life. So let's read verse 4 now and see what happens next. I wonder if this goes at all with the redeeming story of love of the twelve, where God takes the prostitute and buys her back to be his. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a one-day journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And now we get a hint of what we all often wrestle with, I think. Resurrection, newness of life in Christ. I am a new creation. The old has come, the new has come, right? But that old guy keeps, I've, keeps, keeps raising his head, and I keep wrestling with that sin. And it just, sometimes it doesn't feel very new creation-y. Right? As I had a professor that used to say, why, people ask me, why do I keep whipping that same dead horse? And I said, well, the dead horse kicks me every time I walk by it, so I whip it again, right? It's just... He's talking about a concept he's trying to communicate, but it's the same idea, right? Well, why the thing keeps kicking me, so I keep kicking it back. Sometimes life feels like that in Christ. Romans chapter 7 is Paul wrestling with that. Jonah's having that problem here, I think. He's obeying on the outside. He has new life, but when he goes in, he isn't too interested in doing too much to save these people. His message is really short, isn't it? You know how many words it is in Hebrew? Your bulletin tells you. It's five. Yet, yet 40 days and Nineveh, yeah, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. That's a pretty short evangelistic presentation, right? I mean, the navigators do it pretty well with the bridge. That can be pretty short. This is shorter. 
five words. Now use the journalistic questions to evaluate his message, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Right, what does he tell them? He tells them where Nineveh, okay. He tells them what? Overthrown, good. He tells them when, 40 days, helpful. That's it. Does he tell them how? Well, we have no idea. Does he tell them more importantly, why? Did you notice that's not there? Hard to do anything about it if you don't know why. And he, did he tell them who? That makes it almost impossible to act in any way at all. They don't know why. They don't know who. They don't know what they're supposed to do, and they don't know who they're supposed to do it with. So how on earth are you going to stop this? Eh, Jonah, I don't know about that. But we have to understand that probably he is speaking the message he was given. So we get this impression, right? We have an impression of him now. There's one of two possibilities with Jonah. Either when he went in his prophet school, right? He was getting his MDiv in prophecy. When he went to prophet school and he went to evangelism class, he was playing in Minecraft or something on his laptop instead of taking notes, and he flunked his evangelism class. Totally just got enough, right? But they passed him anyway because they were tired of him in school, so they just got, just go ahead. So either he flunked evangelism at prophet school, or he really doesn't want them to have a chance to repent because he's not telling them enough to do so. He walks, this is my, in my imagination, he walks into the city gate, <clears throat> 40 days and it will be overturned. And that's about, that's about the extent of it, right? And then he's going to go to the motel because he said what he had to. God told him to tell him that. 40 days and it'll be all term. And then he's going because he stinks, right? I mean, can you, he's been three days in a fish, right? He's blanched, he's blanched white by stomach acid. His black hair is blonde peroxide, right? And that dead fish smell is like two weeks, two blocks ahead of him, right? It's just, it's an odor that just sort of precedes like, oh my goodness, what is coming down the street, right? So he's going to the motel. He said his five-word message. He's done. He's going to take a shower. He's going to get room service. And he's going to soak in the hot tub because, boy, that fish was unpleasant. And he's happy because he's done what he had to and nothing more. Forty days and it will be overthrown, and hopefully they won't understand what I just said. But there's a subtlety in his wording that's important. Again, the Hebrew word hafach is the word for overturned. And it almost always or usually means destroyed. It's like overturned as in smoking hole in the ground, kind of overturned. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, this word happens to them. right? Annihilated, nuked, blown off the map. That's how the Ninevites take it, as we'll see in just a second. That's what Jonah appears to be hoping for when we see what happens in chapter 4 next week. But the word actually has a wider range of semantic meaning than that. And when you use it in this particular verb tense, it changes it just a bit. I want to give you a couple of examples. It's used in this verb tense a number of ways in Scripture. I'm going to give you two illustrations that illustrate the twist that happens when hafach is used in a different verb tense and we change a little bit from smoking hole in the ground. Exodus 7.17 uses this. Moses, I believe, is speaking to Pharaoh. And telling him the word of God. Moses is saying, Thus say the Lord, says the Lord, By this you will know I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that's in my hand will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it will turn into blood. Did the Nile turn into a smoking hole in the ground? Right? It shall be overturned into blood. Was the Nile annihilated? 
Here's the second use. 1 Samuel 10.6 is talking about Saul. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and you will be overturned into another man. Did Saul become a smoking hole in the ground? Was he destroyed? See, the normal meaning of this verb and this verb tense is overturn as in transform, as in completely different substance. You catching that? Overturned as in transformed. It's going to be a completely different substance, water into blood. It's going to be, you're going to be a completely different man. Saul the king to Saul the temporary prophet. So what's going on? Forty days in Nineveh will be overturned. What does that even mean? Why? How? Who? The brevity of his five-word proclamation only emphasizes what happens next in the story as it blows the doors off the book of Jonah, verses 5 through 9, starting in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's the word for faith. The people of Nineveh had faith in God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Amerism, right? That means every single person. Jonah utters his little minimalist message, and he hopes no one hears him. He just mutters at the gate when he goes in. And someone hears him, oops. And they even recorded it on their phone. You know, they got it. Oh, I just got the, what was that? And then they tweet it, and it gets retweeted and forwarded through everybody's little social media, everything that they do. Reposted. Everybody's wearing Snapchat, or everybody's wearing sackcloth, right? And Snapchat's, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm not eating in sackcloth. What are you doing? I'm not eating in sackcloth either. Right? And this starts to get more in mind. The whole city is now repenting. No one's eating. Everyone's turning from evil. There's a mass revival that breaks out. The tra- even the traditional media picks it up. Right? It's even for the three people who still get a newspaper. It's even on the front page of the newspaper the next morning. So when he gets back out of bed, it's like, what happened? My continental breakfast isn't being served because we're all not eating and the only thing I have to dry off from my shower is this scratchy, horrible towel thing. It's like burlap. This is not, I think, what, quite what he was aiming at, but he's not the one who's aiming the message, is he? By fasting, the city of Nineveh and its people come before God empty. They come empty. That's key. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to bring. We can't do anything. We repent. Please have mercy. That's it. By coming in sackcloth, by coming in sackcloth, they stand before God in poverty. In poverty, and that's important. There are no riches we have that can buy our way out of this. There's nothing we can do that can work our way out of this. We have no power, possessions, or wealth. We have nothing. We repent. Have mercy. The city is being overturned. Right? And a book that makes its living on reversals. On reversals. That's the main storytelling motif of Jonah. Nothing ever quite goes like you think it will. He dies and he's back alive. The, the worstest, baddest, nastiest, horriblest people on earth are now repenting from a five-word evangelist. Billy Graham never had it so good. Verse 6, right? We're not even done. 
We're not even done. Verse 6, the word reaches the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in ashes. This is the leader of probably the most powerful empire on earth. He's hated by almost everybody. He is feared by all. He hears the word of God and he follows his people. And the king follows the people. He comes down. He's fasting. He's in poverty. And he goes one step further and he gets rid of his throne. And now he's sitting on a pile of ashes. He rejects. He's empty. He's in poverty. He rejects any comfort from the world. He comes with absolutely nothing. I can't save myself. I can't save my people. I can do nothing. Please have mercy. The city is being turned upside down. Verse 7, he issues a proclamation and published, published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast, neither herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed. Let them not drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. There's that word great again. Greatly to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is upside down. And it reverses and ups the ante again. Right? You can make a fast last for a while. Now nobody gets water. How long can you go without water? Two days, maybe, maybe three, way less than 40. You could make it 40 days without food. You can't make it 40 days without water. We're not even going to wait. We're not going to wait for the end of the judgment period. We're going to deal with this now. We're going to come today. This is urgent. No food, no water, man, beast, all of creation, everything that I have dominion over, all of us are coming to repent and plead for mercy. The king is off his throne. The king is on his face Everybody's been brought low. That is unbelievable from a five-word message from a reluctant prophet. But God has said in 40 days, this is going to be a different place. And it looks like he's starting now. But even as we marvel at the repentance that's coming in the city of Nineveh, we need to not miss the warning that's going on as well. Jonah's part of the book of the 12. It's not telling the story by itself. If you did the bonus reading, if you remember, if you remember the email that you got on Friday about the bonus reading to get ready for the sermon, it was Joel, the, the book of Joel before Jonah. So if you read that, you're, thinking, you're think, probably thinking, I recognize this because I've read this before. And you have. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, God is punishing his people, Israel. He's talking to Israel so that they will repent. Now listen to part of Joel 2 when God is talking to his people. Judgment is coming, God says, and now see if this doesn't sound familiar. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who ex executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? But even now the Lord says, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, chesed, 
and he relents over disaster. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the Ninevites are doing. What God told his people Israel to do, turn away from your adultery, your idolatry, come back to me. Nineveh is now doing exactly what he told them to do. But the difference is Nineveh doesn't have this text. They don't have that word. The Ninevites weren't told who to talk to. They weren't told why they were going to be overturned. They've managed to nail it on the first try. Even though they didn't know in their ignorance. They've responded just like Israel should have. But Israel never did. And therein is the warning of the text in the book of Jonah. The Ninevites hear God's word and repent. The Israelites hear God's word and sin more. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? First John says, if you remember when we studied it together, by this we know that we abide in Christ if we obey God's commands and believe in Jesus, his son. And God's commands mean love one another. John is saying, Jonah is saying, it is a perilous thing to ignore God's call to repent. Philip Carey, in his commentary, hits the irony head-on of the Ninevites repenting when Israel refused to. The reversal is pointed and should not be missed, Carey writes. The people of Nineveh survived long enough to destroy the people of Israel because the people of Nineveh turned every man from his own way, from his evil way, and the people of Israel did not. Remember the hope of salvation that we heard in Romans 10 today, our confessional text. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus will not be disappointed. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? It is a perilous thing to ignore God's call to you. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning? If not, call on him and you will be saved. You will not be disappointed. Don't miss this chance. I would love to talk to you after the service. Tom, Kevin, and Patrick would love to talk to you after the service. Anybody who regularly attends here can talk to you about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a perilous thing to hear God's word and not repent. And remember the hope of mission that we heard in Romans 10 in our confessional text. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. If you're one of those who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and Jesus' three-day journey from death back to life and resurrection and ascension, then you have a mission. You have a purpose. And it's this. Get up and go. Make disciples. That's what you get to do. It's not just what you have to do. It's what you get to do. You can say, look what's happened to me. I don't deserve to be here. I have no rights. I was an outsider and I've been made a part of the people of God by the blood and by the body, by the lamb. Come. Let me tell you about him that you might be part too. Go make disciples. That's what you get to do if you are in Christ because verse 10, look at the end of the passage. 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster he'd said he would do to them and did not do it. And that's the kicker, I think, at the end of the text. I think that this is what God had in mind the whole time. It says that he repents of the disaster. He does this several times in Scripture. He says, I'm going to come and judge you, but a key figure like Moses or like Jesus or like Joshua intercedes for the people and stands between God's wrath and the God's people and says, no, I will intercede for them. And God says, I will not judge them. I will instead give them mercy. I think this is what God was aiming at the whole time with Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh is going to be a completely different place. Because of the three-day journey God sent his son on from death to life to get to them. Because Nineveh is a great city to God. Not because they deserve it, but because he has just so chosen. We call that unconditional election. He's just decided, I'm going to save those people. And I'm going to do it through a three-day journey. And that's the way this is going to be. So you've heard your commission from the book of Jonah chapter 3 this morning. It's those two parts. Salvation belongs to the Lord, my friends. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is your only hope in life and death. If you don't yet know him, come in faith to him. Please grab me or an elder or someone who regularly attends here. and Let's talk more. And if you are in Christ, you have the same kind of call. I am a Christian means go. Make disciples of the nations who happen to be everyone around you. Let's pray. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it has been written, how beautiful are those who preach the good news. Father, we ask this specifically this morning. We ask that you would help each of us to help one person who is not yet a Christian take one step toward Jesus in this week. We could ask for more. That's what our faith allows us to ask for today. Everyone here, one person, one step toward your son. We pray that the Spirit would make our words and our deeds effective that the person we're talking to would be able to have eyes that see and ears that hear and heart that responds to the message and the visible word, the incarnation of the gospel that we do in our words and deeds this week. This is our privilege. We look forward to you answering our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Morning is believe in the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Believe and proclaim one person, one step this week. That's your commission. Your benediction, God's promise to you, comes from the middle of the book of Ephesians, and it is this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to know how high, how long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowing that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.